Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I know you make fun of NASCAR. Fast cars making only left-hand turns for 500 miles at 200 miles an hour. You make fun of their fans. You make fun of their colorful cars. But you can't make fun of their, their patriotism or their faith or their passion for the sport. They put it right out there. Last March, after the big shutdown, 900,000 fans watched their favorite drivers compete in what was uh, really a pretty sophisticated video game version of their sport, complete with live booth announcers on Fox. But I'm probably not making my case any stronger by sharing a little tidbit like that with you. Now, I'm not talking about all of you. Just talking about, you know, some of you. You know who you are. For the most part, you're the ones who nearly got a case of the vapors when you first heard that curling was be going, going to become a, an Olympic sport. Just kidding. <laughs> Mostly. NASCAR was the first sport to come back after a long coronavirus hiatus, albeit without fans in the stands. And now it'll be the first sport to welcome back fans. Starting this morning at Homestead Miami Racetrack, they'll allow 1,000 spectators in. And next Sunday, a race at uh, Talladega, Georgia, they're going to push that number to 5,000 fans in the grandstands. They'll mark the first major sporting event in front of uh, uh, spectators since mid-March. Considering the Miami track can hold 46,000 people and uh, Talladega upwards of 80,000 or more, it's a slow, safe, responsible start. Things are about to start trickling back toward normal, whatever normal will be. Not rushing back, but even a, a trickle can give you hope, can it? And so we better start thinking about getting off our hiatuses here in church as we begin to trickle back to full speed ahead. In case anyone's forgotten what we're all about, Jesus reminds us in our gospel lesson this morning, church is not a spectator sport. Some people treat Christianity that way, don't they? good percentage of our own Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod folks worship less than 1,000 souls on a Sunday, often because somewhere along the line, enough people said, we have an evangelism committee, let them do it. I'm too old, or I'm tired, or I've already done my time. Hopefully that last one isn't a reference to prison time. And so they just waited for God to send people to them. Now, they're good people. They're kind people. They're strong, believing people, welcoming people. They just decided to let God do the heavy lifting of guiding people to their doors. Christianity, for those churches at least, may have actually unintentionally become a spectator sport. They're happy to rest on their past successes. And I'm not hearing Jesus talk like that this morning. You know, I broke down and bought a smartwatch this past year because I had a credit at the store and they had a big sale. And, and uh, I don't know, it still doesn't talk to me like it's supposed to. And I'm probably uh, pretty much okay with that. Uh, but it does keep good time. And it keeps track of my steps. If I sit still for more than an hour or so, it, it suggests that I get up and go for a walk. If I reach my steps goal for the day, it cheers me on. And so this past week one day, I exceeded my steps by about a third. I got congratulated, but do you think all those other extra steps got credited to my account for the next day? Absolutely not. You think if a person walked a couple of thousand extra steps one day, 
They ought to be able to walk a, a couple of thousand steps less the next day. Just doesn't seem fair. Am I right? Yeah, I'm imagining you all nodding your heads in agreement now. One of the good things about being online, you're always in agreement with me. Same thing here, though. Same thing. When a congregation's work of gathering the harvest becomes doing their time, or it's not gathering the harvest because it feels like it's done its time, that church is on the way to intensive care where it'll be put on life support, just waiting to be put out of its misery. A lot of us are really uh, beyond the day, physically anyway, when we could climb into a race car or run up and down a, a basketball court for an hour or two. But we're never too old to think and act like the Christians we became at our baptisms. That's what will make the difference. See, it all starts out with remembering that Christ-like heart you received. We were all given a heart to share Jesus that day. We weren't born with it. doesn't come naturally. Come spiritually through God's Holy Spirit working that change in each of our hearts. The gospel changes lives. It transforms people. Hearing that we receive the forgiveness of all our sins and eternal life in heaven for Jesus' sake, for his perfect life, for his suffering and dying on a cross is our sacrifice in our place. That's, that's life-changing. It means that there's always hope, even when your life seems hopeless. That there's always a fresh start waiting for you, just for the asking, even though you know perfectly well you don't deserve it. Why would you want to keep good news like that to yourself? Besides, getting a Christ-like heart comes with pretty good benefit and retirement package. You know, first you'll begin to see like Jesus saw. Matthew 9, verse 36 from our gospel reading today. Uh, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. You know, during his three and a half years in ministry, uh, Jesus put some miles on. Matthew says that he went through all the cities and villages. First century Jewish historian Josephus tells us that at this time, there were over 200 cities and villages in the region of Galilee alone. Now, Galilee is a uh, an area west of the Sea of Galilee that stretches out about 40 miles wide and 70 miles long. Because the land was so fertile, it was home to a big farming industry. Farming was pretty much the number one occupation back then. Josephus estimated, and he was known to inflate his numbers a little from time to time, but it's really all we have to go on, that in the smallest villages and cities uh, lived at least 15,000 people. And based on that number, Galilee, where a lot of Jesus' ministry took place, probably contained as many as three million people. And he would go from village to village and from city to city, ministering to as many of those people as he could. And everywhere he went, he saw people hurting. When Jesus stood on a hilltop and he'd watch the crowds begin to climb up and gather around him, he didn't just see so many people. He saw worn down people. Saw people in need, people with no direction or, or plan for their lives, people who floundered from one day to the next, pushed back and forth by the tides of life, people who were simply existing but not living. The word used here that's translated compassion is a very powerful word. It means to be moved in the inner being, in the bowels literally. It means not only to be conscious of suffering, but with the added desire to to relieve it and remove it. It means more than, than just a feeling. 
They saw that they had no direction. They had no goals like sheep left on their own who wander aimlessly inspired only by the next patch of green grass and then the next until they don't even know pretty soon where they are, even how they got there. Their souls had no spiritual care. Now these people had their church leaders, they had their Pharisees, their Sadducees, uh, their scribes and rabbis, but these men were as lost as the people they were supposed to lead. They never recognized Jesus as the Son of God. They never recognized Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the, the Savior God would send. Now only about one-third of the world today is Christian. In the United States, that number is down to about 65%, down from 75% in 2015, down from 85% in 1990. We're definitely on the decline. And when it's safe to go out again and just sit somewhere and have a cup of coffee, try that and just watch people go by for a while. Now imagine that in this country at least, one out of every three people who walk past you is a person you probably won't see in heaven. Every third person lost. Or on a world scale, two out of three lost. If you could do something to change that, wouldn't you? That's seeing through the eyes of Jesus. He saw people as, as lost sheep wandering here and there through life with no goal, no sense of where it was all leading or where it's all going to end. If you live through the loss of a loved one, then you know the difference knowing Jesus makes. How could you ever stand the thought of someone you, you meet missing out on that kind of power, that kind of comfort in their lives? See, we have to see the lost and the brokenhearted like Jesus did. But people say, well, I see them. I just don't feel qualified to help them. Now, Jesus didn't pick the top 10% of seminary graduates to take his word out into the world. He also couldn't look down from heaven and not say to the Father, here I am, send me. And neither should we be content while the world still mills about aimlessly and its people still suffer. He summarized the problem for his disciples when he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I think it's to the shame of the church today that so many people still don't know Christ. Today, sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, his work is to send. Ours is to go. We're to pray that he will send forth harvesters. But don't be surprised if a prayer like that will begin to move you. It's a prayer God is only too happy to grant. Let's look at who Jesus sent out in our gospel lesson. The 12 disciples. The men who were about to rock their world. Uh, there wasn't one religious professional among them. There was no one with a particular talent for it. There was no one experienced in outreach. Who did he have to work with? Well, there was Peter, fisherman by trade. He had some leadership skills, but he tended to speak without thinking first. He would later boast that he would never desert Jesus, no matter what, and then shamefully deny ever knowing him when he was pressed about it. Andrew, he was Peter's kid brother, always trying to live up to his brother's long shadow. But he was one of the, well, the one actually who brought uh, Peter to meet Jesus. There was James and John, brothers, sons of thunder. Jesus gave them that nickname because they wanted to call down fire from heaven on some inhospitable Samaritans one time. 
They would have qualified for anger management classes. Hot-headed, hot-tempered, and ambitious. They wanted to sit at the head table at the future banquet in heaven. Not the meek and mild persons we would expect to, to be disciples of Jesus. Judas, the greedy one, he sold Jesus out to his enemies for 30 pieces of silver. You know, in the history of religion, there are always those who love gold more than God. Then there was Thomas, the doubter. He wanted proof that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He was a natural-born skeptic, and he wasn't alone. Even at the end, as the Lord was about to ascend back into heaven, the Bible tells us that some of his disciples still doubted. Matthew, the tax collector, half crook, half businessman. Everybody knew that tax collectors would take advantage of you if they could. They looked out only for themselves. Interesting for, interestingly, for a guy who must have done a lot of talking before and after he met Jesus, nowhere is a single word he spoke recorded. Simon the Zealot. He was a political uh, fanatic, part of a group that, that wanted to overthrow Roman rule in Judea. In the checkered history of Christianity, some people have always been interested in using Jesus to further their own political agenda. Philip and Bartholomew. We're not told much about them, but Bartholomew may be another name for Nathaniel. He was the one who first brought, was first brought to Jesus by Philip. He was the one who said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was the town where Jesus grew up. About Thaddeus and the other James, the son of Alphaeus, uh, little is really known. See, looking back on the 12, I don't see any potential superheroes of the faith. I don't even see anyone we could say for sure was a citizen of the year type. All I see is common, ordinary, everyday, imperfect people. People with quirks and weaknesses and faults who were chosen and used by Jesus just as they were to bring his powerful message of salvation into their world. So the reins of their ministry have been handed to you and I. What should we do with them? Actually, we've already started. Because first, you need a plan. One especially regarding how you reach those that many of you may know who still need Jesus in their life. During the lockdown, we even embarked on a whole new way to reach people we may never meet. People who may just be curious about church or who may have had a bad experience with the church and still haven't been able to get past it. They can join us online and they can do it anonymously. We're working on a plan to get back into this place on Sunday mornings, sooner than later. Our, our online presence is part of that plan because it allows those of us who are uncomfortable for health reasons or any other reason not to be here until there's a cure, a vaccine for this COVID thing. And just like with any of the plans we make around here, we need you to help bathe it in prayer. Someone once said, Satan laughs at our toil. He mocks at our plans, but he trembles when we pray. That's so true. When you and I pray, we're unleashing the greatest power in the universe, and we're asking God to act on our behalf. Nobody understood the power of prayer, I don't think, like the Apostle Paul did. In Romans chapter 7, listen to what he writes. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the, for the Israelites is that they may be saved. 
For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. They were close, really close, yet they were still so far from gifts of salvation uh, by grace through faith alone in Jesus. Maybe you know someone like that. Paul is is praying to God. He's begging God so that they might be saved. When was the last time your own heart was so broken that you, you begged God to save someone? I know that for some of you, you, the answer would be this morning. But I'll bet for a lot of others, that answer might be, you know, I never thought about it before. Remember that it's God who does the saving. God who changes their hearts and brings people to repentance. It's God who does the converting. But God does it through his means of grace, through his word and sacraments. And his word might be something as simple as you sharing with another person the difference Jesus has made in your own life. It shows, doesn't it? Sure it does. You have such a great message to share. You know, if you're watching online or you join us in person soon when we reopen, I pray that you'll hear the gospel clearly and and plainly in our liturgy, our music, our message, and our readings every single week. Everything about our worship says God is with you. God loves you. God sent his son to suffer and die for you. To take away all your sins so that you can stand before God wrapped in Jesus' own perfection one day. Certain that he has a place already prepared for you in heaven for all eternity. In times of plenty or in times of trouble, keep going back to what you know is true. God loves you to death. And he'll never turn an honest doubter away. That's news someone you know could use. Amen.